0: Good morning, I, those particular passages to me are like powerful, but sometimes they can get lost, and so we hear them so many times, especially the 1 Corinthians 13 passage where we hear them at weddings all the time, and we're just like, oh, okay, it's just the wedding passage, it's the, it's the thing we need to hear for weddings. So what I wanted to do is kind of read back through the Matthew passage and kind of comment going through, and then we'll get going into the sermon. But Matthew 22, again, 37 through 40, uh, in the New International Version says, When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, he responded with absolute clarity love. Love is the greatest command. He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. It's frequently that we actually make it more difficult than it is. So ask Jesus, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself, love God. Like, okay, is, is it that simple? It is that simple, but we make it very difficult. And what I also wanted to do is read uh, the passage, the First Corinthians passage out of the message. Because I think for me, the message is a paraphrase, but it's a great uh, paraphrase, kind of kind of rehear it in a new way, in a different way than you usually would hear it, uh, especially when you hear it in weddings. So uh, let's, uh, let's go into it and look. And before we do that, uh, just before we look at the passage itself, the passage is not specifically designed to be read in a wedding. It's actually read, it, it is actually a, a passage of scripture. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians because they're not loving people. They're actually, let's say if we had a meal here and said, everybody, let's come for a meal and then we just eat all the food and, and visitors come in and then there's no food for people to eat. That's basically what was happening. If you read Corinthians, first Corinthians in general, uh, they're doing a lot of, lot more things that are not loving. Uh, that include eating all everybody else's food and drinking all the wine and not allowing them to have anything when people come uh, later on in the service. And that's, For me as an elder and I'm one of many elders and leaders at the church and one of my jobs, the unpaid job of an elder uh, and and Omar's job and Chad's job and Christina's job and all of the staff and all the leaders of the church is to commend people and to encourage people to love one another, point us us back to uh, loving God and to loving our neighbor and to loving our enemies. Um, And that's also all of our jobs to remind each other of how to love and what love looks like and what love doesn't look like. So I want to revisit the passage in first Corinthians with that in mind. So it says in the message, if I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day. And if I have faith that says to a mountain jump and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. puts up with anything, trust God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Like for myself, me rereading this in different translations and especially in the message reminds me and it encourages me that I need to take this beyond just hearing this in weddings or when I officiate weddings, not just read it. I was like, oh, okay, we got that part of the service done, but really focus on how I can love others like this is saying that we should love others. So we need it for our relationships. We need it for work. We need it for school. We need it for every relationship that we have. This brings me to uh, a book that I have been reading over the past few weeks. Uh, I heard it on a a podcast that I listened to called The Holy Post. Um, And this book is called Good and Beautiful and Kind, Becoming Whole in a Fractured World. We all realize that we're living in a fractured world. Um, and this helped me to re-see this passage in a way that uh, is more powerful to me. And I hope it does uh, the same for you. He is a pastor uh, in a multiracial church in Queens in New York. Uh, and I have been really impressed with this book. And it has encouraged me to figure out how to love my neighbors and love God uh, in a more broad and a more uh, robust way. So the first couple of sentences in this book in the first chapter kind of gets at what the kind of the main point of what I want to talk about today at its core, sin is a failure to love. It's a power that curves us inward in the words of North African Bishop, St. Augustine, humanity is incurvatus and in say, or curved in on itself. And it goes on to say, we frequently understand sin as those things, uh, as those things to avoid results. And if I I understand sin just as those things to avoid, it results in a false sense of spiritual maturity and blinds us to the ways we are to love others. This way of thinking also robs us from enjoying God and self-righteously places us above others. So this brings us, to my story, you'll all have a, a, a picture of myself uh, when I was probably—I think I was seven or eight. Uh, used to be extraordinarily skinny, redhead, freckled. Uh, I think I got this right after I saw Star Wars for the first time in the in the theater. Uh, so I was a, I was a kid raised very comfortably in San Carlos. Uh, uh, my friends lived in Del Cerro and San Carlos and lived in, and grew up in that neighborhood, but just like any child, I was immature. That's what a child is, is, is immature and you mature as you're growing up. And it took a while for my spiritual maturity to catch up with my actual growth so much so as I was growing, uh, I had such bad growing pains because I'm 6'6 and therefore it hurts when you grow. But just as I hurt when I'm growing physically, uh, there are definitely some pains that come along with me uh, growing uh, spiritually. So I was, talking to, uh, I was talking to my wife, Gracie, a few weeks ago. I can't remember if it was during Omar's sermon or after, whatever it was, I was listening uh, to the sermon. And I thought, I don't think there's a, so many new people and so many new faces at the church. We don't, like some of you may not even know that there's elders or people. So I thought, let's take an opportunity. I'm going to introduce myself and kind of going through my story of what have I, I've experienced uh, and how Jesus has brought me through uh, and uh, kind of introduce myself in that way. That does not require all the elders to do the same because this is going to be somewhat of a confession, <laughs> like the confession we did earlier. There's a lot of stuff that I have done wrong and I still continue to do wrong. I just wanted to kind of go through and talk about my story and see if it connects with you in any way. So I was born in San Luis Obispo, California, and I moved here when I was six. And uh, I was raised in a church called the Church of Christ. So if you guys are familiar with what the Church of Christ is, it's no music whatsoever. So we can't have the, um, uh, the instruments and things up here. Uh, also, uh, certain way to do communion, certain way to do baptism, but their belief is that baptism saves. They're the only church. If you walk away from that church, then, uh, you potentially lose your salvation. Uh, so I was in that kind of environment growing up, but I, I learned a lot about the Bible. I was like at the, if you would, could say at church, like a top of my class, like Bible trivia, I know a lot of stuff I can, I can remember all these old Testament stories, all these new Testament stories. And I can, I can kick back that information to you. So I, th- I thought, Oh, I'm pretty uh, spiritually mature. I went to Weinberger, which is now Benchley Weinberger. If you're familiar with that or have any of your kids in that school. Uh, and then I went to uh, a school called Southwestern Christian school in Vista, which is a church of Christ school uh, off of L street. Uh, and then I went to Christian junior high. And uh, I-, I think where's Charlie long at is it? So uh, he uh, is either my principal of junior high, this is hard, this is so long ago, uh, junior high or uh, uh, high school of Christian high. Um, and I call those the Almanconi years. So if, you, if some of you know who Almanconi is, uh, Jen uh, decided to laugh on that. Um, Almanconi is a person that would come in and tell you that all the music you're listening to is of the devil. And they would actually say, okay, basically go list through, through the list of my music. Like, okay, Led Zeppelin, oh man, Pink Floyd, like every single one. There's backward masking and there's things like that. You shouldn't listen to that. I don't think he told us to burn the albums, but almost. Like, if you like this, then you need to listen to Petra. Or if you like this, you need to listen to Steven Curtis Chapman. It's like, that, that is not, there's no connection between the things that I liked and those other albums. But here's the replacement. And at that time in Christianity and music, it was just like, no, this is, this is not good. But here's your replacement. Here's the, the God-honoring replacement. So those are my Almanconi years. A lot of legalism, don't do this, cut your hair a certain way, have collared shirts, certainly no tattoos, no Led Zeppelin, no Pink Floyd. Uh, and then I went to a Christian high in ninth grade and uh, went, to, uh, went there. And it, between Christian junior high and Christian high school, I started discovering like, okay, they're saying some things different than my church of Christ when I was growing up. Like, okay, there's Christians outside of the church of Christ. I don't understand how this is possible. They believe in different things. And I started expanding my knowledge of who, who Christians are and can they be something different than I am. And then I decided, I see people over at Patrick Henry, uh, having fun over at Patrick Henry. And I just like, okay, I think, I, will, I, th- I think I'll just shift from ninth grade over to 10th uh, grade at Patrick Henry. And I tried that for a little while, and I was like, "Oh, I'll get bored." And then I like decided to go back to Christian High. And at Christian High, I wanted to read a uh, uh, a section out of a book called "Chicken Soup for the Soul: Teachers' Tales." So, even before that, so about fifth and sixth grade, I decided that I I was going to to have my identity, establish my identity, in the class clown. Like, I'm just going to be really funny. I think it's really funny to pull chairs out from underneath people and play pranks on people and stuff like that. So that started in fifth and sixth grade, get called in the office. That school spanked, I think, several times uh, for me. And I think the junior high did as well. Um, But once I got to 11th grade at Christian high, this is what one teacher said of me. That year in room 219 was bumpy. I didn't know how to discipline. They didn't know how to behave. Occasionally, one of the worst of the lot, David would somehow get into the classroom and set our clock ahead 10 minutes. I lived and died by that clock. So when it said time for class to end, I trusted it. More than once, I let the class out to roam the grounds before lunch. She did not list all the things I did in her class. Turn the seat backward, lock her out of the classroom, throw shoes. I mean, it wasn't, it was, it was bad things. But it wasn't like what you say, oh, that, that person is just an awful, evil person. They should never have gone to Christian High in the first place. It was just pranks and I thought this was fun, but I was disrespecting the teacher as I was doing that. This teacher's name is, at the time, was Robbie Floyd. And this story will come full circle later on in my story. And then we come to an amazing looking photograph of my 12th grade year, my senior pitcher. I also wanna confess of the mullet that I have currently in my, my senior picture. if you can see it very well. My hair is very curly when I did have hair and I decided that I wanna grow it long like the, like my musicians that I idolized. Uh, I would like to grow it long but it doesn't work with curly hair. It just curls up with like cinnamon roll things on the back of your head. So that's what it looks like. So in 11th grade at the tail end of my 11th grade year, I can't remember if I officially got kicked out or if they just said, I think this is not the place for you. You need to go back to Henry." Back to but I got kicked out and then at Patrick Henry, I got a, a relatively low grade point average. So can you guys give me an idea? What's a, what's a good grade point average? Four, 4.0? What's a, like a medium grade point average? Three? Okay, what's a less than medium grade point average? What's less than that? So the grade point average that I got was point six seven in my senior year of high school. And it was because... Not that I couldn't do it because I didn't want to do it because I was bored. I was, I was sitting in class and it's like, I would much rather be across the street doing other things besides going to school. So it got so bad that they just go, I just want to graduate you. I want to get you out of this high school. So they walked me and they said, okay, then you got to go to Crawford and you got to take all these extra credits to actually make up so you can graduate high school. So, and, and the counselor right before I left said, okay, all these other people are going to college. And uh, it probably want to have good grades going to college. And I think that you're, I don't know for sure if the counselor said you are too dumb to go to college, but I felt that even if the counselor didn't say that. But, um, I, and they said, well, you're really interested in, in working on cars. I think you should just go work on cars. So I go, okay, I'm going to move to Arizona and go to auto mechanic school. So I decide let's go to auto mechanic school. But at that time, right when I, when I went off to Arizona, I was going to church the whole time in high school in junior high. And I was part of a youth group and I was doing these things and I started getting into partying and and going to backyard shows and things like that. And I was living this double life. And right when I graduated high school at 0.67 grade point average, um, I decided that I don't wanna go to church anymore. For a long time, not go to church anymore. And it wasn't because I don't believe it anymore. It was more that I was bored. It's like, I'd rather I wanna do what the world is doing. Um, And I will share the kind of the rest of my story uh, at the end of the sermon. Coming back to uh, the book and Rich Velotas book, he he focuses on three things within the first chapter that I want to look at and then kind of weave in kind of how Jesus has been working in my life and was working at that time as well. Sin turns us inward through three things. Grasping for power. Envy and exclusionism. So I discovered, of course, through uh, hard times that I was spiritually immature. I thought I had all the right knowledge and I've been going to church my whole life. I don't remember a time when I wasn't a Christian, but it led me to this misunderstanding, this uh, understanding of sin as uh, something that's just uh, me transgressing against God's law. But it's more than that. It's grasping for power. It's envy. It's exclusionism. It's not doing certain things. So the first uh, story that we're all familiar with, we hear all the time in church, is the story of Adam and Eve. And the Adam and Eve bring, uh, brings us to this idea of turning inward through grasping. We see this, they decide that they want something that they shouldn't have. Uh, Then they, as soon as they get it, they start rationalizing away, making excuses and blaming other people uh, for their sin. And Rich says this uh, in that first chapter. Whether the grasping comes in the form of taking land and calling it manifest destiny, whether it's corporations seizing land and exploiting the environment for economic self-interest and calling it innovation whether it comes in the form of sexual abuse or in that workaholism that fractures our families, our world is caught up in the sinful trap of aggressive grasping. And for me, it was a grasping of power. So for me, as I like at at the very end of high school and and then leaving the church, the power for me came through music. And we're we're not necessarily going back to the Almanconi years, like that type of music, but I got into a lot of punk music and I was listening to groups like Minor Threat, Agnostic Front, Black Flag, Suicidal Tendencies. Like, and there's a lot more, there's a lot worse groups that I can be naming, but it's not necessarily the music in and of itself was bad, but I was feeding off that music to get power. I was 165 pounds and as tall as I am right now. So I was very skinny and I was like, oh, I'm just gonna, to act tough, I'm gonna, I'm gonna channel that through uh, my music. And I used alcohol and I used drugs to numb me of the Holy Spirit. So God was convicting me the whole time. I'm, do, I'm away from the church. I'm away from Jesus. And I know that I was saved, but I decided that I want to go my, do my own thing. I want to do the prodigal son thing and kind of grasp for power through music and through my friends and through things that I thought I can get my identity through. And then we come to, uh, in the Bible, the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, sons of Adam and Eve. And they, the, the chapter points out uh, this turning inward through envy. And right when I first read this story, I think like, okay, what was, such the, what was the big deal? Uh, and uh, Rich points out what the big deal is uh, in that chapter of that book. The story says that God was more pleased with Abel's offering, which led to Cain becoming angry and envious Cain's jealousy turned him inward, leaving him to conclude that the only one person could only one person could be in a success, him or his brother. That's simple. Cain's envy produced an imaginary world that paradise could exist only if his brother was eliminated from it. It's the source of our fractured existence, whether through the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya people in Myanmar, the political animus that feeds off the defeats of one's opponent. And we've experienced that for sure over the past three years. It's like, yes, we won. I've beat those fill in the blank of who you would like to beat as a political uh, enemy. Private desires that we harbor for others to fail, to look for us to look good. And this way of living marks us as it did Cain. The paradise we thought we'd never find, uh, we'd find never materializes. So for me, the envy showed up. And of course, envy still shows up. But during this time, as I was away from the church, away from Christians, and I thought away from God and trying to hide that, my idea of envy is I wanted what other people had in the sense of popularity and look and what the world had and was grasping and striving after those things. I was envious of what people have. And as I go through these, I want you to also think, like, how does grasping for power and how does the, 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 this sin of envy like show up in your life? And be thinking confessing that as you go uh, throughout your week. And think through your, your story and see how, the, how those things come up. And then finally, the Tower of Babel, turning inward through exclusionism. And we're all familiar with the Tower of Babel. So not long after Adam and Eve, they try to build this tower to heaven to get up to where God is and they wanna stay in one place. We think like, what's wrong was with building a tower and what's wrong is because Jesus specifically in Genesis 128 says to fill the earth and multiply. And so that you can n- not be all here and think that you have this all together that you need to be dependent on God and you need to spread out and uh, populate the earth and continuing in his book, rich says this the problem with them building this city is they would rather stay within a homogeneous setting that have their lives intersect with others. The problem with their brand of unity is that it would lead to uniformity and exclusivity and hierarchies, something we see reenacted daily in expressions of Christian nationalism, racism, ethnocentrism, and sexism. So basically these things, all these isms you don't understand, they're basically just saying if your country seeing your country, if you really believe that your country, your race, your ethnicity, are, and your biological sex are superior to another one. That's idolizing those things, and it's it's what would fall under the category of exclusionism. And he continues, it's seen in the way social media, through its sophisticated algorithms, turns us in on ourselves. It's expressed in the toxicity of political power plays. Hopefully, there's some people that went through a book uh, called uh, Compassion and Conviction that kind of gives us ways to actually we can express uh, and love people even in the political uh, arena, including these poll parties uh, that we've been talking about, how to do that in a loving way. But most likely, most likely we see that on social media. We've seen it in our friend groups, the toxic version of that. And we wanna look to different ways uh, of doing that so we can love God and love others uh, in a better way. So how it, exclusionism showed up for me is as I came out of the Church of Christ, I thought, okay, we're the only church Everybody else is wrong. So, but then I left the church and then that same attitude basically uh, came forward and I thought everybody else that believes something different than me, politically, musically, anything, they're not worth my time. And I basically dehumanized other people because they're something different uh, than me. Another thing I want you to do this week as well is to kind of figure out how exclusionism shows up in your life and be confessing that as well. Uh, and it can continue in that first chapter of the book. The world sees this. They see grasping, envy, and exclusionism. If they look at Christianity, and are looking from the outside in. When people berate Christians for a lack of love, and there's a reason that I chose the love passages at the beginning, they demonstrate that they understand the tenets of the faith very well. Christianity is about the love of God being expressed through followers of Jesus. It sometimes seems as if the world knows more about our faith than we do. If they look from the outside uh, and, see that, and they see themselves acting more like Jesus than us, that's a problem. And a lot of my friends, like right now, I, am, I should be angry at a lot of things that are going on in the world. the Injustices and things like that. And I am angry about those things. But I'm more angry sometimes. I'm actually angry at Christians for acting in such a way that people look from the outside and that's what Jesus is. Over the past couple, three years on social media, I think the majority of my posts, so few that I actually do now, is actually, that's not Jesus. That's not like, as they'll post things, that's not Jesus. That's people acting, That's not acting like Jesus, even if they're claiming to be Christian, just like I was as I was growing up, leaving this double life. And I saw this as I was studying for this sermon. I saw this post on Instagram uh, that's also, a post uh, by the author of this book, but it's literally a a quote from Eugene uh, Patterson that is uh, the author of the message. He says, as a pastor, you've got to be willing to take people as they are and live with them where they are and not impose your will on them because God has different ways of being with people and you don't always know what they are. And I would, in that pastor position, as a Christian, you gotta be willing to take people as they are and love them right where they're at and not impose your will on them and allow the spirit to actually do the moving as opposed to you going in and trying to change their lives. So how how do we actually change our lives? How do I change this envy and this grasping and this exclusionism in my life? How do I do it for myself? How do I turn myself outward in love and upward to God and out to others. We actually cannot do that by ourselves. We don't, that's God's job, just like it's God's job for to convert people that are not Christians, that are our friends and family and things like that. We need to rely on that spirit. And the last few quotes that I'll use from the the book talk about this in a powerful way. We need to understand that that power comes from the gospel, not from ourselves or from how good we are, how much Bible trivia we know. He says, the world apart from God is in sin and we can't rescue ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't work or legislate our way out of it. We can't educate ourselves out of its grip. We don't overcome it through progressive achievements or by moral consistency. The antidote for sin is not found by looking to the left or to the right. It's in the power outside ourselves. It's the cross of Christ. The gospel is the good news that God's kingdom has come near in Jesus Christ and through his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. And until we consistently live from a place of humility, confessing our sins before God and one another, we will find ourselves gradually turning inward. And I, like, I, I want to like, publicly thank God for actually, it's not, it's not up to me <laughs> And then now I really truly understand that, that my job is just to be humble and to love people. That's my job. Not to go around telling people and debating people and things like that. It's to, to love them. And, and I can see the, the work that God has been doing in my life as my life has been going on. And there's hard times and there's good times. And I want to kind of continue in my story uh, And it kind of going from like what I was and what I am to what God is and what God has been in my life. And we'll bring up the slide that says God is faithful. So I think I was away from the church for about uh, eight years. No church, uh, no uh, contact with many Christians at all. Uh, Decided I want to do my own thing. Uh, I want to live on my own. I want to have nothing to do with especially Christians at that time that I would see as hypocritical or not fun or wouldn't put up with what I, was, what I was dealing with. So the very first thing that, how God brought me back, he brought me back through youth ministry and very strange, my, it's not, this is not strange. My parents have been praying for me the whole time. Like, hey, can you please like come back to Jesus? Uh, like, I don't like what you're doing, but I'm gonna love you anyway. And I'm just continually praying for me. So they're praying for me and I decide that I'm, gonna go, I'm gonna start going back to church. I go back to the Church of Christ at this time and I go, okay, I, I, I think it's the first or second Sunday and they go, I think you should be in youth ministry. And I'm just like, that is not a good idea. Because like, I think every other word out of my mouth might've been the F-bomb like at that point, it's as far as like what it would sound like to you, how, how I spoke. And I was literally afraid of like sitting up here and dropping the F-bomb every sentence or every other sentence. So they go, no, I think you can do it. I think you can use all that time, those eight years that you were away from the church and stuff like that and use those mistakes and teach youth, okay, I'll try. But six months in, six months into that, God like radically got a hold of my life. And like, I decided, you know what? I, I need to go back to school and actually know what I'm talking about to actually teach and to lead uh, youth. So I go, I'm gonna go at this time. It was, I think it was called Christian heritage college then, but San Diego Christian college. I'm gonna go back to, I wanna do Christian ministries. I wanna get into the ministry full-time. I'm gonna go gung-ho. They go, well, we don't have Christian ministries degree. There's not enough people in this degree. So how about you do human development? I go, okay, that, that sounds good, but I, ha- I don't ha- I have, awful grades. So can I get in? Oh yeah, if you pay us, you can get in. I was like, okay. so. <laughs> I paid, I paid them instead of actually having good grades immediately with like the, all this part of the story is like the power of God. There's no, way. I, I got like F's and D's, D's if, if it was a good day when I was in high school, but then I got into, and I think I got all A's in my undergraduate, uh, and maybe a B in math, cause math is awful for those people that also hate math like me. So God is faithful in that in in bringing me in through youth ministry. He helped me find my own church, get away from the church of Christ. Of course, there's loving Christians inside the church of Christ, but I decided through my own study, going to school, I'd rather go to another church. Uh, I finished my bachelor's degree in human development. I start teaching biblical studies at 12th grade uh, at Horizon High School where I meet the Yerkes and I teach Chris uh, in Bible. Um, and that's the reason the way he is. So you can, (laughs) sorry about that, but that's when the rest of the chicken soup story comes in. So this, uh, this teacher, that was my 11th grade teacher, um, writes this about me as this awful student. She's talking about other students and things like that, but she ends the story with, okay, I'm coming in. Uh, as my first year teaching at Horizon. And I come into the to the, to the lounge where they have this teacher orientation. Joseph was also, uh, actually uh, also there as a fellow teacher at Horizon. And I come in and I see this teacher that I harassed at, the, at Horizon. So completely different school. I see it back then and I go straight to her. I'm just like, I am so sorry. This is, I was so awful to you and turning the chairs back and, and around and turning the clock back and throwing shoes and doing awful things I did. And she goes, oh, Liz, that's really funny, but God's gonna get you back, is <laughs> what she said. And I'm just, because she was so like green in the sense of like first year teaching, didn't have any of the same experiences. I'm just like, I don't think I'm gonna have the same problems as you had. Cause I literally come into class and I go, I just list all these things that I just listed and a lot more of all these horrible things I did in class. And I said, in general, let's just respect each other and respect me and we're gonna get through this. You're in 12th grade, I know you don't wanna be here. I didn't, I barely had any discipline problems because I've done it all. I just was like, i not, Chris was not one of these people, but i would just like, look at them and go like, you're not going to get away with anything. Like I've done it all. And I literally had done it all. I'm not just making it up like some of your parents do when they say that they, I know where you're coming from. So I went from there to pastoring youth and young adults at Scott Memorial, which is now Grace, uh, San Diego. Um, and then I moved, I decided that I'd like to move to Georgia. For some reason, because it's a cheaper uh, uh, cost of living, I'm going to go be a, a pastor uh, in Georgia, for youth and family pastor, and then that church splits and decide, okay, I'm going to start, a, I'm going to start my own church. Like I don't know what I was thinking. Let's start my own church. I'm a pastor of a church in Georgia, and then uh, basically all hell breaks loose because I was married at the time. My wife decides that she doesn't want to be married to me. And I'm just going like, all I ever wanted to do is be in ministry. And I go, okay, what is, like, what's going on? So I'm just like, okay, tail between my legs, move back to San Diego, move in with my parents. That's If anyone has ever done that, that doesn't feel so great, Uh, coming back. But then I'm, like, searching around for churches, and I'm thinking, like, oh, I'm connected to too many, and I don't know where to go. So then I meet, uh, uh, then I hear from Sarah Jane that, uh, like, hey, which was at. Uh, Scott Memorial. When I was there, hey, you should come out, come check out Harbor. Uh, And we'd said that to both Joseph and I. We'd like, okay, we'll come check out Harbor. Um, And while at Harbor, there's fantastic things that have happened uh, at Harbor, uh, including an opportunity to actually be able to speak. But uh, I actually changed my profession. Okay, I'm not going to do ministry anymore. I'm going to get into education. So I go get, I start working at a university in San Diego, Ashford University start working at admissions. I get my master's degree. I get all A's in that. What in the world? I don't know. I don't see it. There's no connection to that. And then I meet my wife at Harbor. Uh, and you can ask her about the specifics about that story, but she was stalking me at some fellowship time and stuff afterwards. Um, and said, Oh, there's a tall guy. Who's that guy who where, there's Joseph and David. And who's that guy? I want to know who he is. So Harbor has been a place. I came to Harbor and some of you may be in this exact same place. Like you come to Harbor and it's literally a Harbor. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm healing. I'm like, I've been eaten up by life and by the church and bad experiences up in the church. And I come and I go, I don't want to do anything. I literally don't want to set up chairs. I don't want to do ops. I don't want to, I don't want to greet. I don't want to do anything. And I think I might've done nothing literally for six months or a year or things like that. In this healing time, a lot of Harbor in the early days was that. Uh, for me especially. And then I started doing things like ops and then they go, hey, do you want to be an elder? And then that's weird. It's the same idea of like youth ministry. No, I'm I'm afraid that I'm going to do this. But God has uh, uh, been faithful in that as well. And then I get my doctorate in education, which is the most ridiculous thing in the world. Like I don't, and all these grades, this has nothing to do with me saying anything about me because it's not me. I don't know where this comes from. Like God is faithful and like, bringing like restoring what the moths have destroyed. (laughs) It's like this, like I was afraid of taking math and I thought I was a horrible student, but then I discovered uh, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the kind of pushing me toward, you need to do this. You need to use all these experiences and you need to get into education and use that. And I'm ministering now uh, through education. And this is a, this verse in Ephesians, I kind of want to kind of wrap up with Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 to me is a passage that I always go back to and get a lot of consolation, get a lot of encouragement from. Because even though it didn't seem like it, if you look from the outside, I was not acting like Jesus. I was, especially that, I mean, as I was growing up or in that time away from the church, Um, but I was saved. And I I know that because I was convicted the whole time. I was just trying to hide it. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, and when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Like it's a very clear passage for me. Okay, once I believed, I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit, he's got me. It's not about me messing up and doing all these things that's gonna take me away from God's love. And, I wanna encourage you, just like I said, my parents were praying for me the whole time. Lots of people were praying for me and they were faithful and actually doing that for me. And God is faithful in actually bringing me back. So if you have loved ones or children, it's all in God's hands and He's gonna do amazing things. And it's, even though you feel it, I know as parents, like you gotta feel it. Or as a spouse or as a friend or whatever the case may be, God is faithful. Especially like if we're talking about if, if they were saved and they decided they wanna f- fall away from the church, I did that and, and God brought me back in a powerful way. And my parents loved me, they never pushed me away. People were not judgmental and things like that. And I, at the, Here at the end, I wanna use um, what some people's like, okay, why are you using a tattoo or tattoos for a sermon? But for me, this is a picture of what my life. So when I was 21 or 20, I get the tattoo on the left, if you can even see it. Um, And it is when I was 160 pounds and six foot six, and I thought, this is what you do instead of working out and getting really strong and bigger. I would just get this tattoo on my arm and it would be intimidating to people. Um, I don't know why I thought that. And then I thought, oh, let's go to Ocean Beach and get a tattoo and I'm going to pick a tattoo off the wall. And I think, oh, instead of just making it completely off the wall, I want to change one little thing and then I thought it was unique. But I thought this was intimidating. It's like a grim reaper, death weird angel thing that my wife uh, laying next to me is just like, oh, that has red beady eyes. I don't like this and things like that. So I decide for my 50th birthday recently that I would get this tattoo over the top of it. And for me, it's a picture. It's a reminder for me especially because of what it actually says and what it represents. It's a picture of uh, Saul, the conversion of Saul. And it's a stained glass window uh, in Oxford. And it says on the top, in Latin on the stained glass window, it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Latin, but I changed it to a section from a passage in 1 Timothy 1.12 that says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy. So that's what the word says on the top. He considered me trustworthy and not because of my faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness. He considered me trustworthy to appointing me to his service. Even if I'm, on, even if I'm not in the service of me being a pastor, we're all in the service of Jesus And it's just a reminder to me, and it also helps my wife to not have to look that thing uh, all the time. And it's just like, I love this, I love art. Um, But I I kinda need that kind of a thing as a reminder. And this is not an encouragement, everybody go get a tattoo to remind yourself that God loves you. But for me, it reminds me of God's uh, faithfulness. So going back to the title of the sermon, the title of the sermon is Who Am I and Who is God? So I am and you are a forgiven child of God created in God's image. You're, you're loved, uh, you're indwelt with the Holy spirit. And then who who is God? And he's more than just faithful. He's faithful. He's merciful. He's gracious. Like for to put up with all the things that I've done and what all of us have done, it's this amazing love, uh, that, that has, has changed my life. And there are times, of course, I don't do this stuff perfectly just like any of us, but I want to encourage you to stay faithful in praying for your loved ones, praying for one another, showing each other how to love people well, as opposed to judge uh, and telling people how they should live their lives. Love them because love is what uh, brought me back. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for who you are. Thank you for the thread of your spirit and the thread of your love and faithfulness through my life. We thank you uh, for that in each of our lives. Um, We know that you are faithful. We don't all the time experience that or really believe that, but help us to believe it. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to love people in a way that you would love people. Change our lives uh, through your spirit. Help us to be faithful in praying for people so they can experience the same love and the same grace. Help us to learn from uh, our mistakes. Uh, Bring them to you confess, be humble, not be prideful and big headed and look out for ourselves. All those things that we see in this passage that we uh, completely forget because we hear it so many times. Help us to be patient. Help us to be kind. Help us to be good uh, through your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.